0: Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in 2 Nephi 1-5, through but as promised, we are also going to talk about 1 Nephi 22 because we kind of skipped that part of the end of First Nephi. So in 22, there's a definite message in there. But before we get into the message, Bryce, why don't you talk about big picture as far as what's going on? What's Nephi's objective here from a big
1: picture standpoint? Okay, so if you'll remember where we've just been in terms of Lehi's dream and Nephi's dream, Lehi sees sources of happiness, love, and God's love, and then he sees imitation happinesses. Then he sees sources of help that lead us to the truth, and then blinders. And then Nephi kind of gets a historical version. Now, in Nephi's version, he's taken back to the Jews of the Savior's day, and he realizes that they missed Jesus because they they had a mist in front of them, and they just didn't, he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. So one blindness that Nephi is aware of is, sometimes we miss the, the Savior because he's not what we expect. He doesn't meet our expectations. So what we need to do is we need to clearly understand what is the Messiah going to do. So there's one blindness that Nephi saw in vision. And then in chapter 12, where he talks about Lamanites and Nephites, He sees the tree, the rod, the building. But then he also recognizes that the Lamanites were blind and the Nephites were blind. And just like we talked about in our last podcast, Nephite blindness, when they got arrogant and proud, they didn't think they needed God. So another blinder that Nephites can address is sometimes we don't think we need God. So he's seen the Messiah is not the what I expect and sometimes we think I don't need him. And then Lamanite blindness is kind of an anger. They're so caught up in suffering and pain. It's not fair. It's not fair. And this, I don't deserve this, that they reject God because they're blinded by his fatherhood and his loving care to, to change them. And so Nephi's going to address that one as well. And then when the subject of the Gentiles came up, he saw that the Gentiles in our day, there's two Gentiles he addresses. The Gentiles in our day are blinded by the false religious ideas that blind them to truth that's right in front of them. They cannot see the restoration because they're blinded by their, their holding on so tightly to, to um, religious truths that are missing the plain and precious truths. And so he's going to address that one. And then he also saw that there was a righteous group of Gentiles in the latter days who were faithfully going to follow the Savior And they have to deal with all of the challenges of the latter day. So those seems to be Nephi's five audiences. I would suggest that in Nephi's mind, there are five main groups of people he's addressing. Those who are blind to Jesus because they they expect him to be something that he's not. Those who are blind to Jesus because they don't think they fully need him or understand him. Those are that's... Jewish and Nephite blindness, and then those who are blind to Jesus because they're just angry. They're angry at life's consequences. Those who are blind to Jesus because the lack of truth is blinding them to the fullness of truth. And then his fifth audience is those who just need comfort because, man, they're going through the latter days, and it's hard. So I would suggest to you that the whole book of 2 Nephi is Nephi's desire to help those blindnesses. He's going to speak about the blindness, you know, Messiah blindness, where he's not what I expect. So there's going to be whole chapters on, well, let's talk about what Jesus really is and how your wrong perceptions of who he is is kind of driving you away. So that'll be kind of our context for going through 2 Nephi. Now, why is 2 Nephi significant? Turn to chapter 11. And notice that Nephi, Second Nephi is written by four people, four prophets. Lehi starts us off. Jacob is going to spend a lot of time. Isaiah is going to write a lot, and then Nephi is going to conclude. Now he doesn't necessarily mention his father. He kind of does this later, or earlier. But Second Nephi, chapter eleven, what do all three of the other offers, Nephi, Jacob, and Isaiah, all have in common? Verses two and three. Why, why is he going to quote Isaiah so much? Why is he going to quote his brother so much? Why is he going to speak himself? Well, verses 2 and 3, they, know, they are yeah. all eyewitnesses of Christ. They all know Christ. Yeah. So I would suggest, brothers and sisters, that the second Nephi is Nephi's attempt from eyewitnesses of the Savior to teach correct doctrine about who Jesus really is and what he really wants us to do and how we find him, and how we discover truth. And so we're going to deal with those blindnesses, those four blindnesses that Nephi saw in 1 Nephi. The blindness that the Jews had in the days of the Savior, where because they expected something else and they didn't see who he really was, because he wasn't what they expected, they rejected him. Nephite blindness is, I don't need him. Lamanite blindness is, I'm angry because I don't see his love. And then Gentile blindness is these false ideas that Nephi will spend kind of the whole end of second Nephi dealing with false churches and false religious ideas, and how do we reject them? So that's kind of a structure of second Nephi. I like that, Bryce. I want to just add one thing. I think it's
0: more than just that they've seen Jesus. I think what Nephi is trying to say is, we know Jesus. Yeah. This isn't just like, oh, I saw, I had a vision where I saw him. I think one of Nephi's purposeful constructions is he's trying to reveal the nature of who he is. You can use the words of religion and not understand God. For example, you can use the words of the Gospels and talk about God as a father. But to Nephi, he is a father. And there's a difference, isn't there?
1: that very personal relationship with the father. Now, we can clearly add Lehi to that list because we know that Lehi knew Jesus and saw Jesus. So the four authors of 2 Nephi, Lehi, Jacob, Isaiah, and Nephi, are all eyewitnesses of the Savior and His character and who He is, and they're going to try in this book to change some of our misconceptions, our blind spots, our misunderstandings, so that we clearly see the Messiah and come unto Him. That's what Second Nephi is all about. Now before we jump into that let's go back to 1 Nephi 22 because we ended 1 Nephi kind of with a wonderful message to that fifth audience the gent the faithful gentiles in the latter days who have to deal with the the coming of Christ the you know the signs of the time and so if you'll turn back to second or 1 Nephi chapter 22 Nephi kind of gets in this subject of okay those of you who live in the latter days need not fear. So there's some wonderful things that come out of 1 Nephi. For example, look at verse 13. It's not going to end the way you think it's going to end. Good will not defeat evil. Sometimes we, I mean, goodness always defeats evil, but in the end, it's not that good will beat evil. It's that, do you see what he saw in verse 13? Read that, Mike. Yeah, it says, The blood of the great and abominable church, which
0: is the whore of all the earth, shall turn upon their own heads, for they shall war among themselves, and the sword of their own hands shall fall upon their own heads, and they shall be drunken with their own blood. It kind of reminds me of section 45 at the end, where the Lord says, People are going to be invited to come to Zion because it will be the only people that will not be at war one with another. Right. So it's kind of a different conception of what that the whole end times
1: could be. So hold on to hope, stay with Zion, stay with righteousness, because the whole world is going to – they're going to destroy each other. Therefore, one major message, speaking to this group of Gentiles in the latter days, notice what he says, 17, 19, 20, 22 – Remember Nephi was not allowed to tell us what happens. He saw the vision, but he was said John's going to write it. You're not going to write it, Nephi. You're not going to tell them what happens. So he says I'm not I'm not I can't tell you what I'm going to tell what how it ends, but what I can say is 17, 19, 20, 22. What I can say is, guys, it's going to be okay. You don't need to worry. You can even I've done this before in classes
0: where I have students grab a pen. Or a pencil, and they could just put a little check mark near next to all the places where the Lord's like, the righteous are gonna be okay, the righteous need not fear. It's repeated so often and so many times, all the way to the end of verse 28, that it's almost
1: like you'd have to be willfully ignorant to to not get the message. And so Nephi's just shouting a message of hope to to the righteous Gentiles. Everything's gonna be okay. I notice how he says he will preserve the righteous by his power. Righteous need not fear. 19, the righteous shall not perish. 20, the Lord will prepare a way for his people. And 22, the righteous need not fear. So kind of the idea here is gather together as a righteous community, Zion, and let the world fall apart because you're going to be safe in Zion. And yet, even though we have this idea if you
0: think about what Latter-day Saints are doing, we are just bending over backwards to save the world. Yeah, we're do- sending our sons and daughters into the nethermost regions of the earth. We are, we are spending so much treasure and time and sweat to preach Jesus, even in, to the point of being mocked, aren't we? Yeah. And we're but and so it's not like we're abandoning the world. We're trying to save it. And I I would just invite you, the listener, to think about what can you do specifically to help bring about peace? Because everybody is invited
1: to bring forth Zion. And I love verse twenty-six because of the righteousness of his people, Satan has no power. Wherefore, he cannot be loose for the space of many years. Yeah. It, we just don't make room for him. So let's gather together. Let's be a righteous people. Everything's going to be okay. Satan won't have any control because of the righteousness of the people. What a wonderful society! So I love chapter twenty-two. It's just Nephi just cheering the Latter Day Gentiles on, saying, "You've got it, guys. You're doing great. Hang in there. Everything's going to be okay." The right righteous are going to be preserved. We're going to win this battle. Yeah. So just a message of hope. Good. I, I do want to, before we skip and, and
0: leave this chapter, I do like verse uh, 23, where the scriptures point out light and darkness and look at the four things that, or the five things that the churches of the world. And when we say churches, what do we mean by that? It's just the word, it could be assembly. It could be group of people. But they seek verse 23 to get gain, which is material possessions, power over the flesh, to become popular. They seek the lust of the world, and worldly, philosoph- worldly philosophies, things that please the world. And if you think about that idea, we live in the world today where um, there's definitely this fight going on. And I think the church of Jesus Christ is not going to be so concerned necessarily about being popular or some of these things, but the main message is to teach Christ. And so. It's just a really good distinction there between these
1: two movements in First Nephi 22. Yeah, and Nephi is going to pick up this idea at the latter half of Second Nephi because the latter-day Gentiles are blinded by false truths. He's going to talk about the false churches of the latter days and how to make sure we are not blinded by false truths. So he's going to blow up verse 23 and, you know, Second Nephi 27, 28, 29, and, you know, at the end of Second Nephi. So you can kind of see that common theme flowing throughout nephi's writings
0: good so a lot of these chapters in second nephi the front end are going to be lehi it's yeah. kind of the the, so it's like the last will and
1: testament of lehi That's before right. he dies before i go out i'm going to talk to each child each group of people so lehi is going to t- you know tackle all these different groups and so chapter one he's going to speak to laman and Lemuel. chapter two he's going to speak to his son J- jacob chapter three he's going to speak to joseph And then chapter 4, he's going to speak to Zoram and then his grandchildren. Now, what we don't have in here is what he says to Sam and Nephi. I don't know why they're not in there. Nephi chose not to include them. But I would suggest that the ones he's including are trying to correct those ideas of let's see the Messiah. So let's start with why were Laman and Lemuel blind and how that blindness is like our blindness in the latter days. And so chapter one is Lehi to Laman and Lemuel. So Mike, take it away. What do you see in chapter one? So I see a couple messages. One of them is th- this idea that
0: they're asleep. Several times he says, awake and arise. Anciently in the first temple, when Israel came to the temple, part of the drama was that the Israelites would rise and they would stand before God and make a covenant. And so if we read it in this notion, we read it this way, look what it says in verse 10, where he basically says, if the day will come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer, their Lord and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. And so one of the messages here is that the Israelites or the Jews in Jerusalem rejected the Messiah and they lost the temple, they were destroyed. And I think Lehi is giving them a warning here. And so in that motif, look in verse 13, he wants them to awaken from a deep sleep and stand and arise. That's verse 14, that's verse 13, that's verse 21, and that's verse 23. It's just, and so in my scriptures, I literally have this stuff circled and I'm connecting this. And what does Lehi want them to do? In my, in my mind, I picture this image in the ancient Near East, the king at the end of the drama would be embraced um, by the priest that represented God. And he would embrace his wife. And the the embrace was read in conjunction with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, where the kings proclaimed a son of God. And the embrace was the ultimate symbol for the atonement. And so there's a lot of literature out there on how the atonement and the embrace are connected. And it's right here. It's all throughout the narrative. But look right here in verse 15. The Lord has redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I think Lehi is begging his sons to awake and arise and become sons, become true men, become kings, come to God and embrace him. And so the embrace throughout the whole Book of Mormon narrative, brothers and sisters, the embrace is the atonement. And that image is just a sacred, holy image. In fact, right in front of me, I have a picture um, of, of Lehi and he's gathering his sons around him and he's embracing them. And that's the
1: image, Bryce, that I have of God. I look at him as like,
0: he wants us to come to him.
1: Yeah. And here in chapter one, there's a beautiful symbolism. See, Laman and Lemuel are like you and I rejecting Nephi. So sometimes we're angry at God, like Laman and Lemuel were angry at Nephi. So this is that Lamanite blinders, this and, is so good. Yeah, Look at verse 24. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it's like, okay, guys, so everything he's going to say to Laman and Lemuel about Nephi really is, I think Nephi's including this to say, hey, those of you that live in the latter days, you're doing the same thing with Christ- that Laman and Lemuel did with Nephi. You're angry at Christ because, A, look at this list here. This is so brilliant. Go ahead. Yeah. So look at verse 24. Rebel no more against your brother whose views have been glorious, who's been an instrument in the hands of God. In other words, those of you in the latter days, you're angry at God, You're angry at Christ whose views have been glorious. He's been just trying to teach you the Word of God. Look at verse 25. He has sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. People who love you correct you. People who truly love you want what's best for you and are going to teach you how to change. Well, that made Laman and Lemuel angry at Nephi, and it makes us angry at God. So verse 26, don't be mad that he uses sharpness. Don't be mad that the Lord points out your flaws and wants you to change. Don't be mad if the if your life is trying to help you to overcome your weaknesses. Don't be mad at Nephi because he's trying to make you better people. And that's what Lehi's trying to say. So you see that blindness? It's that Lamanite blindness that he's trying to correct. Don't be mad at God because he loves you enough to try and change you. He's gonna speak with sharpness. He's gonna use the Holy Ghost. He's gonna say things that maybe you don't wanna hear. And by the way, how you respond is the answer. That's right. We're all going to have the
0: problems, but at the end of the day, how you respond to Christ, or in Laman and Lemuel's terms, how they respond to the king, which is going to be Nephi, is going to determine determine everything. And Bryce, I keep seeing this, and I keep pounding this, and I don't think it's in here by coincidence, but look at the end of 1 Nephi 8.1. The promise... Is seed. We're back to this temple notion. Yeah. Seed, posterity. Your decisions affect people not yet born, and how you respond to Jesus is going to have eternal implications. And that's the the biblical term for this is seed. But we're
1: talking fertility. But I'm not talking about plants. We're talking about people. So go back to verse 21. He says to Laman and Lemuel, "Be men. Rise up from the dust and be men." So so here's a beautiful I- I- image of how we're supposed to respond to the correcting hand of God. So the way they should have responded to Nephi is the way you and I should respond to God when his only desire is to bless our lives and make us better people. We need to be men, notice in verse 21, determined in one mind and in one heart, united in all things. He's calling on his sons to be one mind, one heart, united. And I thought a lot about what does it mean to be one with God? So I thought a lot about what does it mean to be one? And I remember asking a group of teenagers, what does it mean that your parents are one? And they said, well, it means if you ask the one, they'll say the same thing that the other one will say. You know, if, if mom doesn't want you to go to the movie, then dad won't want you to go to the movie either. And then I asked the question, what, is, what does it mean if you and your mom and your dad are one? And they rolled their eyes like, well, then you just don't even ask. Well, why don't you ask? Because you know what they're going to say. And I said, is that oneness with mom and dad? Just because you can anticipate what they're going to say, are you one with mom and dad? If you are one with mom and dad, why don't you ask? And all of a sudden, one girl realized, because you want for yourself what mom and dad want for you. Boom, there it is. Now you're one with God. Yeah, that's it. When you want for you what God wants for you, you're one with God. So the plea here with Nephi and with all of us, or sorry, Laman and Lamuel, the plea here is be one. Be one with God. Want for yourselves what God wants for you. What verse is that in, Bryce, where he talks about being one? 21. 21. As soon as he says, be man... Be determined in one mind and one heart, united in all things. And that's what, if Laman and Lemuel had said, wait a minute, Nephi wants for us what is best and what is right, and when we want for ourselves what Nephi wants for us, what Lehi wants for us, what God wants for us, we will be united in all things. So verse 23, put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which you are bound. It's almost That's all God wants. Take off the garments of the world and put on the robe of light. Because it's not gonna make you happy. Yeah. There's no chain that's gonna make you happy. Take off the chains. What God wants to give me is better than anything I want instead. So take off the chains. And so you just What do you think, Bryce? Let's talk
0: about this. What do you think as a parent? How, because you're a parent. Yeah. You know a little bit about kids. I think, me, you've had a, a couple children, and I've had a couple children, and I've been a child. So here's my question How? How do you, because can you sense Lehi? He's yeah. just like, guys, seriously, like you're messing up. How, as a parent, do you get. Li- it's we, so hard. We, we, we were of- planning on talking about this, but I'm just like, as Bryce is talking, I'm like, okay, wait, stop. Let's do some practical rubber hitting the road. How do you do this? I want to hear your take and then I'll give you mine, which they're probably
1: going to be different because we always have, you know, we're different on this. What do you think? The idea here is you, how do you help a child know that what I want for you is your happiness and what I'm trying to do is bring about your happiness. But you don't see it. It's the, it's the same challenge. How do you, how do you convince someone that what we want for them is better for them than what they want for themselves. Children often think, my way is better. My way is better than mom's way, than dad's way. And it's really hard when they stubbornly hold to that. And I don't know that there's a magic wand that simply says, wake up. But that magic day when the child realizes, oh my goodness, my mom wanted what was best for me anyway. And then all of a sudden there's that acceptance and that friendship and then it's love. I, I taught a student who got involved in drugs and his mom sent him to rehab and he confessed to me, I hated my mom. I hated my mom. I was so mad at her. And then he started to weep. But now I realize no one loved me more than she did. And it's that blinder. I don't know that there's a magic way to take that blinder off other than love and care and taking time with a child. Nephi wanted for Laman and Lemuel what was best for them. God wants for us what is best for us. But sometimes we're stubborn children and we think my way is the best way. You know, I got to say this, Bryce. I think sometimes that is, can
0: be such a strength um, I've, re- I've had a couple kids. I have, you know, I've had one of my children who was, was very much, I know what I'm doing and he and I butted heads and it was, t- it wasn't until I kind of relaxed and let go. If I'm making any sense that you think about, he's kind of like the apostle Paul. Like if you've re- read about Paul before he became Paul, he was just pretty much, he had his fist tightened and he was just like, I'm doing this. And I think sometimes, brothers and sisters, those of you that are raising children, that child that's very stubborn and strong-willed can be one of the greatest tools of God once you kind of channel that power. And I don't know if this is anything. I think this is what you're saying, Bryce. I'm going to read this and I want your take on this too. Uh, It's section 121 and it's about how we should exercise power and authority. And I see kind of Lehi doing this, but we don't have the whole record, so we don't really know. But in section 121, like, how do we deal with this? And the Lord says, you know, we've learned by sad experience that pretty much people get power to their head. And that's not a good thing. And then he says in verse 41, no power influence ought to be maintained by virtue of this priesthood, only by persuasion and long suffering. And then go to verse uh, 45. Let thy bowels be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. And then you're going to have the Holy Ghost. Go to verse 46. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to read that word as children, dominion. If you're a king and a queen, the dominion are the subjects. If a family is a kingdom, your children shall be an everlasting dominion. We're back to seed. And without compulsory means, it, the children, will flow into thee forever and ever. And I think there's something about that. God has all this power. And maybe, the, I did not know we were going to talk about this, Bryce, but maybe this flows right into Second Nephi 2 and some of this other stuff is, who is God? And what kind of being is he? Right. And I think, as a father, I just can't compel my kid. I can't force him to get religion. I can't force him to love his mom. I can't, you know, but yet... How do we do it? And I think that's the the delicate balance of how to be a parent. And can, I, I I just empathize with Lehi. I guess is what I'm trying to yeah. say.
1: But there's a great message. You can see that from so many perspectives. You can look at this and say, sometimes we're Lehi. Sometimes we're Lehi trying to get his children to wake up and see. But often we're Laman and Lemuel. Yeah. And yeah. we're the blind ones and we're stubbornly saying, Oh, I hate when God tells me what to do. I hate all these commandments and I hate all these restrictions yeah. until we realize this really is Heavenly Father trying to say, I have, I want you to be happy. And here's how to be happy. And the sad thing is Isaiah tells a story that, Hey, if you resent God, if you resent the wall that he put up to protect you from the enemy, he'll tear the wall down. And the enemy will come and destroy you. So that's the idea of Second Nephi chapter one: is you've got to understand that everything that God is doing in your life is for your benefit, and stop being angry at Him because He's trying to bless you. And you see that blinder that that Nephi. I I can totally see why Nephi throw this throws this chapter in, because in the latter days, so many people are angry at God. Because he's doing something for their benefit that they don't like, and they're angry. Yeah. Which now leads us to chapter two, because one of the reasons we're angry at God is because of the environment He set up. It's
0: not fair. Why? It doesn't am I in this make messed sense. Up world. It's yeah. so messed up.
1: This world doesn't make sense. I have a hard time seeing the love of God in this world where there's so much. Pain and suffering and opposition. And so now we're gonna throw in chapter two where Lehi says, Okay guys, this is why the world is messed up. Let's see God and his purposes and why this world is messed up. So that's second Nephi chapter two.
0: So we're in this world of oppositions. We're in this world where we can't do it by ourselves. I love verse eight. No flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits, mercy, and grace of the holy Messiah who layeth down his life according to the flesh. And why? To bring to pass the resurrection of the dead. That is um, Lehi's testimony. That's my testimony. None of us are going to make it. I love Bryce, verse 3. It gives me so much hope because I see all my faults and I see all the times I mess up as a a father and as a teacher. I love where it says, Lehi says, wherefore I know, verse 3 that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy redeemer. He doesn't say, Jacob, I know you're redeemed because you're such a good kid, because you got straight A's, because you don't break the law of Moses. He says, I know you're going to make it because I've seen Jesus. And I just want to add my testimony to that. If you believe in Jesus and you hitch your wagon to him,
1: he'll get you there. Yeah. I just, that's powerful. And here's how he's going to get you there. So let me just give a brief overview of second Nephi chapter two. Okay. God is a being that acts. He has freedom to act. Freedom eternally and earthly comes from the right use of agency. You'll never gain freedom until you make a right choice. Captivity comes from the wrong use of agency. Now, in order for men to have agency, they have to have the power to choose which is made possible by opposition. And some choices are right and some choices are wrong. And the way we know the difference is by the law. The law tells us which choices are right and which choices are wrong. And Lehi is going to say there must be an enticement. You need to be enticed to do both good and evil in order to truly have a choice. Well, this whole environment of law and choice and opposition is made possible because of the fall, and the fall brought to pass an environment in which we could choose. Now in that environment of choosing, wrong choices are going to be part of the program. And so to overcome their captivity, Christ was sent to atone for our mistakes. And because of the atonement, men are now free to choose for themselves. That's the structure. God is a being of agency. Agency requires choice, opposition, law, enticement. The fall made that environment possible. So don't curse God that we live in a fallen world. It's part of the plan. And when we make wrong choices, the atonement is going to remove the captivity. Therefore, the summary here is in verse 27, because of all these things, because of the fall, because of the creation, because of atonement, because of agency, you are now free to choose. So use your agency to gain freedom so that we can eventually have the happiness that God has. And we'll put a really nice chart out there in the show notes where
0: you can see everything Bryce is talking about. I think if you're a teacher, it's just a really good chart on how agency works. Bryce, I just think this is brilliant structurally, yeah. explaining like the nature of reality. I mean, some people spend their lives reading philosophy, and you, you just get into second Nephi 2, and there's so many theological and philosophical boxes that are being checked off in Lehi's discussion about about the nature of the universe and where this is coming from. And, you know, who do we blame opposition on and why are we here? And it's just really good. And I really like how his whole logic, I love the verse 13, the logic here. He says, if there's no law, then there's no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no righteousness. And if there's no righteousness, then there's no happiness. And if there's no righteousness or happiness, then there's no punishment or misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. So Lehi just walking you through some of these illogical hoops about,
1: Life. Life. Yeah. yeah. So let me even interpret that in practical words. If there weren't something telling you right from wrong, then you couldn't choose if you can't choose, you'll never gain freedom. Yes, you can avoid captivity, but you'll never gain freedom. If you can't choose, you can't gain freedom. Therefore, all of God's purposes are null and void because you cannot gain the freedom that God himself has, the freedom to create worlds, the freedom of happiness that he has. So, if you don't have law, Nothing exists. You have to have a source that says this is the right choice and that's the right wrong choice. So all of these things that people criticize, well, I'm angry that there's opposition. I'm angry that people are enticed to do wrong. I'm angry that people have freedom to choose. Everyone says, I want to be able to choose, but I don't want anyone else to be free to choose. And the Lord says, no, everyone's free to choose, which means their bad choices may have a harmful effect on you. But here's why men can choose. This is an absolutely brilliant chapter to explain the purposes of God. Those of you who are rejecting God because you misunderstand how He's running the program need to understand the program. You need to understand agency and what agency costs us. You need to understand law and the role that law plays in agency. You need to understand enticement. You need to understand opposition. If there were no opposition, there is no happiness. And so I just love that this is another blinder we're checking off because Nephi saw that a lot of people are blind to God because he's not the the God they want him to be. I want a God that lets me choose but doesn't let anyone else choose. I Good. want a God that gives me the freedom to do what I want, but restricts other people's freedom so they can't hurt me. And such a God doesn't exist. And so we have to understand and clearly see who is God and what are his purposes in terms of granting all men agency.
0: In in literature of you know this time period, uh, there's basically two reasons— uh, why evil exists in the world, if you if you study Judaism or some of this early Enoch literature. And there's a lot of scholars that write about this. One of my favorites is Michael Heiser. And Michael Heiser, not LDS, but he's written some really good books. One's called The Unseen Realm. Another one's called Reversing Hermon. And he talks about the tradition that the Christian uh, churches, that in Christianity we don't really hammer on, in, in on, was this rebellion in the heavens. And that that's Genesis 6. Uh, the one we usually hammer on is the fall. You know Adam and Eve in the fall, and what's interesting to me is Lehi says in verse seventeen of the second chapter, he says, um, "I Lehi, according to the things which I have read, must needs suppose." That an angel of God, according to that which is written, has fallen and become the devil. So, you know, he hasn't had it as a vision necessarily, but he says, I'm learning this from the brass plates. And then in the 18th verse, he's going to call him that old serpent who's the devil. In Christianity today, we call him Satan, but, you know, whatever you want to call him, Lehi says, there's one of the reasons for evil but notice how he undoes the fall. And Bryce, I think this makes us distinct from our other Christian friends because of the Book of Mormon, because of Lehi's understanding of the brass plates, he doesn't castigate Eve. He doesn't throw her under the bus. He says, no, Eve was doing a good thing in the sense of, Well, if there was no fall, verse 23, there would have been no children. And so, you know, verse 25, Adam fell that men might be. So he sees this as a necessary thing. If you want to look at this big picture, Bryce, I think that as a metaphor, the fall would be a great story um, about us. And what I mean by that is, let's read Adam and Eve as our story. And we consciously chose to come to this earth. And it's a good thing. It's good that we're here.
1: See, a lot of people think that if they had not partaken of the, the tree, they stay in the Garden of Eden. Their life is peaceful and, and wonderful. And the reality is wrong. The fall was part of the plan all along because look very carefully at verse 23. They were not happy in Eden. They weren't. They were in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. Adam never woke up and said, what a beautiful day it is. As compared to what? He didn't have any... That's why we needed opposition. They would not have been happy in Eden. As much as we long for an Edenic state and we long for all of our problems to go away in a world that doesn't have thorns and noxious weeds and challenges, We're trying. Lehi's trying to say, no, you don't get it. Such a world would not make you happy because there's no agency in that world. There's no ability to choose if there's no opposition. And so they had to fall in order to create this mortal state in which they could have children, they could know, they could experience, they could be tempted. They had to have opposition.
0: An interesting word I want to talk about, too, that goes with that, Bryce, is verse uh, 18, where it says the devil came to them and said, at the very end of the verse, it says, ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And then in the 26th verse, where it talks about the Messiah and it says that we're going to be free forever to act for themselves and not be acted upon. Um, and it says in here, oh, there it is. It's right above that in the 26th verse. It says, they're redeemed from the fall. They have become free forever. And then here's the phrase knowing good from evil. And I really like that's a, just that word, good and evil versus good from evil. And I don't remember the talk, Bryce, maybe you do, but I remember it was Elder Oaks and he was just talking about his dad and he he was a young man and he said, dad, I want to, you know, I want to try, you know, what would it be like if I tried alcohol? And his dad's like, well, you don't want to do that. And he's like, well, I don't, I don't know what it tastes like. Remember that story? And his dad pulls over and there's a cow patty and he says, why don't you go get some of that cow patty and eat it? And young down H. Oaks is like, I don't need to. Eat that. And he's like, well, why not? You've never tasted it. And the message was essentially, you don't need to eat a cow patty to know that it's bad. And I like that, that um, right in that, in this text, just a subtle word, how the adversary, he takes a true sentence and he just kind of tweaks one word just a little bit.
1: I love Second Nephi chapter 2. Great commentary. Again, do you see the blinder that Nephi's trying to correct? Don't be blind to God because the world in which we live isn't what you expect it to be. Sometimes people think, well, if there really were a loving God, this world doesn't reflect a loving God because there's opposition. Wrong. This world does reflect a loving God because there's opposition. No other way could you be happy. And so we're correcting that false idea that God would, you know, that that opposition is an evidence that God doesn't exist. No, opposition is required for agency, which is the only way we can truly be happy and be like God is if we learn to act for
0: ourselves. So I got one more thing on this chapter. There's so much, but one more thing. What is a happy person? a being who acts and is not acted upon. And I think this is also portrayed in the lives of Nephi versus his brothers. Nephi's acting and his brothers are being acted upon. And so I wanna geek out just for a second on the name of God, Exodus 3.13, where Moses says, okay, Lord, you you want me to go to the Israelites? And what am I gonna tell them is your name? And then there's this really strange verse in the English King James uh, Bible, in Exodus three fourteen, where he says, "Well, go and tell them that my name is I am that I am." And I remember as a young man reading that, going, "I don't even know what in the heck is that even saying." <laughs> and I, you know, as I grow, as I've grown and gotten into you know some books and been a little bit nerdy, so this is a really good book by uh, Frank Moore Cross, and he says this. He, he's trying. He's a Bible scholar. He's trying to. Uh, figure out what is this and he says the accumulated evidence strongly supports the view that the name Yahweh yod He vav Yahweh is a causative imperfect of the Canaanite proto-Hebrew verb hu which is to be therefore the divine name Yahweh according to this view literally means he who causes to be or even he who creates now that's w- what he's saying in the, in this there's a lot more to unpack here but what he's saying is is I am that I am, ehye, asher, ehye, is where he believes that is where Yahweh comes from. That phrase in Exodus 3.14 it, is not Yahweh. That phrase, it's complicated, but it means perhaps I am that I am, or I will be who I will be, or I will cause what I will cause to be. Uh, the Bible scholar Christine Hayes says, we really don't know what it is, but it has something to do with being. So then Moses says, well, what are you? And God says, I am who I am, or I will cause to be what I will cause to be. And so Moses, wisely enough, she says, converts that into a third person formula. Okay, he will be who he will be. He is who he is. Yahweh, asher Yahweh. God's answer to the question of his name is this sentence, and Moses converts it from a first person to a third person sentence. He will be who he will be. He is who he is, or he will cause to be. And she goes on, and I'll put this in the show notes. But my point is, and this is where I think the Book of Mormon does this beautifully, it's such a complex concept of the name of God, and he has lots of names, but the concept of his name is packaged throughout Nephi's narrative. everything Nephi Nephi is just screaming from his pores, let me show you who God is. He puts you in this realm of opposition, and even the hero has to get tied up on a boat. In other words, none of us are going to make it through without pain. And throughout the whole thing, Nephi's trying to say, do you want to be happy? You need to be someone who causes to be. Don't react through your whole life. Go out and just... I say this to my boys all the time. You take the bull by the horns and you tell it where it's going. Anyway, I love this. Sorry, that's my geek out moment on this chapter. I really think this is about being happy and we can't be victims. We can't just be playing, you know, woe
1: is me. We've got to act. Yep. God is a being that acts. He is not acted upon. Yeah. He acts, and, and the moment we own that and move towards that, when we become beings that act and are not acted upon, then we are beginning our progression to becoming like him.
0: Wow. We're, okay, we're in three now. So Second Nephi 3, this is big picture, right? We're talking about Sears and Joseph and
1: Joseph and Joseph. So there's there's a lot of ways to look at chapter three. One way, do you remember? Nephi saw that the Gentiles would reject the restoration because they're blinded by these false ideas, uh, their false religious ideas based on you know missing information. So they don't have plain and precious truths, and so that blinds them to the reality. And so one way to look at this is to say, wait a minute, Joseph Smith has been spoken about for eons. Joseph of Egypt spoke about Joseph Smith. And so here's Lehi telling his son Joseph about Joseph of Egypt prophesying of Joseph Smith. And so one way is just, this is a confirmation that Joseph Smith has been in the cards from the beginning of time, that Joseph of Egypt saw Joseph Smith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to quote Joseph of Egypt and Joseph is even going to name Joseph Smith and say, he's not only going to be named after me, he's going to be the name of his father. So he's going to be Joseph Jr. Joseph, called, Joseph of Egypt calls Joseph Smith by name. His name will be the great seer in the latter days will be named Joseph. Joseph and here's what he's going to do. He mainly points to the fact that he will bring forth Scripture, and that Scripture will be unified with other Scripture. So, this is the great Joseph of Egypt prophesying of Joseph Smith. Now, Joseph's dad gave him a patriarchal blessing, and in his blessing. He said this, I bless thee with the blessings of thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even the blessings of thy father, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Behold, he looked after his posterity in the last days when they should be scattered and driven by the Gentiles and wept before the Lord. He sought diligently to know from whence the son would come who should bring forth the word of the Lord, by which they, meaning Joseph's descendants, might be enlightened and brought back to the true fold. And his eyes beheld thee, my son. His heart rejoiced and his soul was satisfied. I will bear solemn testimony of that. I believe with all my heart that Joseph Smith has been seen and foretold from by all the prophets in the Old Testament. Joseph of Egypt took great comfort in knowing that his seed was going to be taken care of by someone named after him, Joseph. Joseph Smith is the latter-day seer that Joseph of Egypt foretold. So one way to look at 2 Nephi chapter 3 is just a waving of the arms to say, all of you who are blinded and you can't see that the restoration is the Lord restoring his truth on earth, you need to understand that this man, Joseph Smith, is the seer that has been predicted from the beginning of time. There's another way to look at it, and that is what is it that seers do? And so, you know, if you read through chapter 3, you can say, what is it that seers see and there's a beautiful list of things that Seer sees, but the idea here is a testimony that Joseph is not an unknown character by the great prophets of the past.
0: I, I like verse 11. I mean, the whole chapter is excellent,
1: but it, you know, if you're teaching, you're not going to cover
0: the whole chapter, but look at verse 11 where it says, I will give power to bring forth my word. I'm going to give him power to bring forth my word. If you just do word count, brothers and sisters, nobody's brought more words of scripture than Joseph in the history of of man. We don't have a prophet that's given us more. I mean Isaiah's given us 66 really good chapters, but Joseph is this tool that's used by the Lord to bring so much. And I just want to reiterate um, this is translated when he's 23.
1: I counted them up, Mike. These are modern-day pages of scripture. Moses gave us three assuming Moses gave us the Pentateuch, which That's a whole podcast. That's a whole podcast. But assuming (laughs) Moses gave us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses gave us 308 pages of Scripture. Paul, who gave us numerous epistles in the New Testament, gave us 123 pages of Scripture. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, gave us 105 pages of Scripture. Isaiah, in his marvelous writings in the Old Testament, gave us 81 pages of Scripture. John the Beloved, who gave us the gospel of John, first and second, you know, the epistles of John and the book of Revelation, gave us 77 pages of Scripture. Those five, the the most prolific gospel writers or biblical writers, gave us a combined 694 pages of Scripture. Joseph Smith, combining just the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, gave us 873 pages of scripture. And that doesn't include the Joseph Smith translation, the lectures on faith, the King Follett sermon, and so many things that we consider to be scripture. This is just canonized scripture. The five most prolific writers gave us 694 pages and Joseph Smith gave us 873. I like in verse 12 where it says uh, that it's going to grow together.
0: And so I just want to bear witness of that, that if, it, if you read, as you read the Book of Mormon, it will grow together with the witnesses of these other great prophetic writings. And Bryce, thanks for bringing that out. I, I want to get that. You know what, Bryce? I'm going to have you help me get that in the show we'll notes. We'll get that's that in good. the show that's notes. That's great stuff. So there's
1: a ton to do here in 2 Nephi 3, but that's big picture. I'm just going to throw one more thing in because we live in a day where Joseph Smith is being beaten up. His reputation is being beaten up. The world world is trying to destroy the reputation of Joseph Smith. And I love verse 14. And I just shout this out to all the distractors. Joseph of Egypt prophesied. They that seek to destroy him. Well, let me read it. Let me begin from the... Bless, behold, that seer will the Lord bless. And they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. It is my solemn witness that when all the dust settles, Joseph Smith's reputation will rise above. He was an honorable, honest, loving, God-fearing, obedient man. And of that I testify.
0: Thanks, Bryce. That's, That's awesome. So that's Joseph and chapter four is
1: he's Lehi's going to die now. He's Let's do his to, grandkids. There's that's yeah, a he's, great he's truth. Gonna, yeah, he's done Lehi Laman, Lesh, Lemuel. He's done um, Jacob and Joseph. We don't have his record to Nephi. Um, I don't, we don't have a whole lot that he said to, to Sam, but now he addresses his grandchildren. And there's a wonderful truth here when he addresses his grandchildren. He knew that his grandchildren raised by Laman and Lemuel were going to be taught wrong. So he says in verse five, I leave a blessing upon you. I know that if you were brought up in the way that you should go, you wouldn't depart from it. Therefore, if you're cursed, I leave my blessing that the curse may be taken from you and be answered upon the heads of your parents. In other words, Heavenly Father understands exactly what we know, what we don't know, and will hold us accountable to what we have been taught. He lifts the curse of his grandchildren and places that upon the parents. See, Laman and Lemuel were taught right and chose wrong. Laman and Lemuel's children were taught wrong and did wrong. And the Lord, for, the Lord says, I'm going to be merciful unto them. Yeah. And I think we need to be really, really careful when we judge each other. And when we look around and say, oh, well, the Lord, that clearly that person is not living up to expectations, but we have no idea what they've been taught, what they know, and what they don't know. We also have to be careful, I think, when we read Scripture for example in this
0: is a lot of this is in the scholarship brothers and sisters but there's this notion of corporate punishment and corporate blessings and it's all throughout not only the old testament but the new testament as well um, if you've ever read Joshua if you remember the story of Achan where he he kind of goes into the city and he keeps you know some some of the goods from the city and If you read that narrative in Joshua, him and his family and his chickens and his goats and everybody is cursed by the Lord, because that was kind of the idea back then, is that if you did wrong, it cursed your whole family and vice versa. For example, Rahab, when she lets the spies in, she's not blessed. Her whole family and everyone associated with her is blessed. And then later in the biblical narrative in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel starts to draw distinctions. And he says, I think you're punished for what you do. And and I can see Lehi wrestling with this. Lehi's seen the future. He sees his children, and then he sees his grandchildren. And I like that, Bryce, where you say, I'm going to try and lift this curse off of you and put it on your parents. And then, not to play the devil's advocate, but how much of the Deuteronomistic Jewish apostate traditions have Laman and Lemuel received? And maybe there's some mercy for them, too. Maybe in Lehi's heart, he's like... Maybe I could have been better and I get it how you guys are confused. And I love, and I don't know the exact quote, I butcher all the time, but I love that quote by Joseph Smith where he says, I get it. The story of what I've seen, I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't experienced it. Right?
1: Yeah. But the idea here is that God, one of my favorite scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants is Doctrine and Covenants section 46, verse 15, that says that God will suit his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. And that's what's being portrayed here is that lame God is going to be merciful unto Laman and Lemuel's children because they just don't know better. And so I know this is a little lengthy, bear with me if you want to fast forward and skip it, but I just have a wonderful example of this in everyday life. This is from Stephen Robinson's book, Following Christ. I give him full credit for this brilliant story. I love it. He says, many years ago when I was somewhere between 9 and 11, I participated in a community summer recreation program in the town where I grew up. I remember in particular, a diving competition for the different age groups held at the community swimming pool. Some of the wealthier kids in our area had their own pools with diving boards, and they were pretty good amateur divers. But there was one kid my age from the less affluent part of town who didn't have his own pool. What he had was raw courage. While the rest of us did our crisp little swan dives, back dives, and jack knives, being ever so careful to arch our backs and point our toes. This young man was attempting backflips and one-and-a-halves and and doubles and so on, but oh, was he sloppy. He seldom kept his feet together, he never pointed his toes, and he usually missed his vertical entry. The rest of us observed with smug satisfaction as the judges held up their scorecards that he consistently got lower marks than we did with our safe and simple dives. And we congratulated ourselves that we were actually the better divers. Quote, he's all all hard and no finesse, we would tell ourselves. After all, we keep our feet together and point our toes. The announcement of the winners was a great shock to us for the brave young lad with the flips had apparently beaten us all. However, I had kept track of the scores in my head and I knew that I knew with the arrogance of limited information that the math didn't add up. I had consistently outscored the boy with the flips, and so certain that an injustice had been perpetrated, I stormed the scorer's table and demanded an explanation. "'Degree of difficulty,' the scorer replied matter-of-factly as he looked me in the eye. "'Sure, you had better form, but he did harder dives. "'When you factor in degree of difficulty, he beat you hands down, kid.'" Until that moment, I hadn't known that some dives were awarded extra credit because of their greater difficulty. That's Laman and Lemuel's grandchildren. Some dives are awarded extra credit because of their greater difficulty. I have a friend to whom life has been unkind. Though she married in the temple, her husband proved unfaithful and eventually abandoned her and their small children. Since she has never been paid a penny for child sport, my friend works full-time to support herself and her kids. For several years, she also went to school at night to improve her financial situation. Therefore, of necessity, she could not be with her children as much as she would have liked and could not always give them the guidance and discipline they needed. It just wasn't possible in her in her difficult circumstances. One result of her less-than-perfect family situation was troubled teenagers. Now in middle age, she she is faced with raising some of her grandchildren, again all alone. Without a faithful companion, without the priesthood in her home, without the blessings that are realized where the ideal family setting is possible. It is almost inevitable that my friend should feel that her scores as a wife and mother, and perhaps even as a person, aren't very high. When she goes to church and sees other ideal families, LDS families, when she hears them bear their testimonies and give thanks for their spiritual and temporal blessings, she sees in her mind the judges holding up scorecards that say 9.9 and 10. When she looks at her own life, her own failed marriage, her own troubled children, she knows that the scores are much lower, and she worries about her place in the kingdom. Well, she needn't worry, for she is as faithful to her covenants and her troubles as the rest of us are in our blessings. True, there are some things she cannot do, but these are a result of her circumstances, not choices pursued by her own free will. And where there is no choice, there can be no condemnation. I have no doubt that when the degree of difficulty is factored in for the life she leads, her crown will shine brighter than many others, for God always factors into his judgment the degree of difficulty. I love that doctrine. I love that idea that God will suit his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. And where there wasn't light and there wasn't understanding and there wasn't teaching, then the, the consequences of that are lifted. I just This is a beautiful doctrine to me, Mike.
0: What verse in Doctrine and Covenants was that?
1: 46 verse 15.
0: That's good. I'm actually writing that down right now. 46.15, that's that's excellent. I, I really love that. I Growing up, I was that. I, I had so many struggles, and I look back and I just see, I just want to echo that verse again in Second Nephi 2, verse 3. I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. And, and I think that as Latter-day Saints, sometimes we get busy in scorecards because, you know, we look at those things, and I think the Lord, He knows. The Lord knows. And so... That's beautiful. Okay, uh, so so Lehi um, he dies and is buried in verse in verse twelve in chapter four. So he 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 dies, and then it says in the very next verse that the brothers are going to be angry and we're going to have this split. The split's going to happen, but right after, right after his father dies, we get the Psalm of Nephi. So beautiful. Where, where he says, oh, wretched man that I am. That's verse 17, and it's a beautiful psalm where I really like it because it shows you a lot of things. It shows you the humanity of Nephi. I think this is so good to read if you have time in a class or with your family to just read it and talk about what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be a prophet? And can you be a good person? And have these feelings and these struggles. I mean, look at verse 27. Why am I angry because of my enemy? Why should I yield to sin? And this idea of um, why should I let the evil one have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? It's beautiful. It's also constructed exactly the way Ancient Near Eastern Psalms were constructed, and so there's been some scholars that have actually analyzed this from a textual perspective, which we're not going to break out in the podcast, but we'll put that in the the notes if you want to look at this and say, what are some of the fingerprints of the Ancient Near East in this psalm? In other words, it's not written by a 19th century, 23-year-old young man. And then go to the, the 31st verse. Actually, go to verse 30, where he says, I will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. The rock, we're back to the Holy of Holies. Verse 31, O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? Wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? May the gates of hell be shut continually before me because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me? When he says that, what he's saying, in my opinion, is, "Will you open the path to your presence to the Holy of Holies?" And that 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 gate was the veil. Will you open that, that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain robe, and then we're in the plain road, and then we're back to uh, the embrace. Verse thirty-three: "O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness?" Will you, will you let me come into your presence? That's an embrace. That's, we're back to the king again, the king being embraced by God. O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? Uh, the Greek word and the, and the Hebrew word for this is the, the, the accuser. And in Hebrew, the, the word for the accuser is hasetan. So will you cast the devil out so that I can come into your presence? And I love verse 35. I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. My God will give me if I ask not amiss. He'll tell me what to pray. Therefore, I will lift up my voice unto thee, and I will cry unto thee, my God, the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice is shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God. Brothers and sisters, I read that, and this is First Temple again. Nephi is saying, I've come to the rock. I've come to this place where God is. I've been in these holy places. My voice is ascending, and he's extending this invitation to you too. But nowhere in here is he exempt. He's not exempt from all the vicissitudes of life. And so that's the fifth chapter where his brothers are mad, verse two, they're angry at him. They want to kill him. Why? Verse three, he wants to rule over us and be a king. And so there's this, I call this the great divorce. This is the beginning of the great separation. And the setting, in my opinion, the setting of this is the temple. I think that's the setting because that's kind of what Nephi says in the 16th verse where he says, we built a temple. And so in this temple context, Nephi is going to be made a king. And if you look in the 26th verse, there's going to be priests and there's going to be teachers. We're going to be talking about the records in the 29th through the 31st verses. Um, And then we're going to be talking, you know, at the very end, he talks a little bit about wars. But this whole chapter is about the temple and about the divorce uh, between these two groups. And I think big picture, it's also what it means to be happy. Because he even tells you, I love this, where he gives you these these things that we do to be happy. So first of all, in the fifth verse of chapter five, he's warned we got to get out of here. So he's he's in touch with the heavens, and then verse six. There's so much on this, but I take verse six to mean there's other people here. Nephi comes to this land; it's not devoid of humanity because he says he departed with his family, and he lists them all, and then he says, and those that would go with me, and so. There's people that follow him that make him a king. And then Nephi defines what it means to prosper. In the first Israelite temple religion, prospering was a big deal. And it was connected to fertility, family, the heavens, understanding who the king was. And so, well, look in verse 14. We've got the emblems of kingship. We've got the sword of Laban. Verse 12. We've got the plates. We also have the Leahona in verse 12. These are emblems of kingship and authority. Look in the 15th verse. He tells them and teaches them to build in the 15th and 16th verse, a temple. But let's talk about being happy. Verse 15, he taught them how to work. Verse 17, they were industrious. They labored with their hands and they built a temple. And then finally the 27th verse. Um, it came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. This is a really good chapter to just have a conversation with your family. What does it mean to be happy? And to me, it means having a connection with God, having a connection with my family and having good work to do and doing those things are what make us happy. And so Nephi is showing us in a temple perspective what it means to be happy. Like I said, I believe this whole thing is, is a temple text. And so I'm, we're going to, and I don't know if we're going to end on this, but we, we need to address this. Bryce, verse twenty-one, it's a problem. Second, Ephi five, verse twenty-one says, "And he caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing, because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, and they had become like unto flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them." Bryce, um, I would say this, I would never go into a lesson leading with this. I would never bring it up in front of students. But as a teacher,
1: wouldn't you agree that you better have an answer if yeah. that comes up? It's so, in the news right now yeah, because big of what deal. was printed in the printed version of the manual and not printed in the electronic version. It is not the church's position that uh, those with a darker skin are cursed. Those who lose the Holy Ghost are cursed. And I think it's just kind of a... You know, we Nicodemus made a mistake when Jesus said, you need to be born again. He assumed it was literal when it was figurative. Uh, the woman at the well made a mistake when Jesus said, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. She thought it was literal when it was figurative. And I wonder if we ought to be careful not to say, make the same mistake in the Book of Mormon when it says they were cursed with a skin of blackness. Um, that may be more figurative than literal. Um, I just be careful uh, it is not the Lord's especially in light of 2nd Nephi 26 that are all alike unto God it is not God's position it is not the church's position that any dark skin is a curse and a sign of displeasure from God that is not at all but I'd be prepared to deal with it because it's in the news yeah. but let's not make the same mistake let's not read the words of the Book of Mormon and assume literal when they may very well have been symbolic yeah
0: And I also think it's okay to say that in the 19th century, there were people who had 19th century racist views. Just like if you read Moses, some of his views about the cosmology of the universe was very much 15th or 12th century views BC about the cosmos. And by the way, everybody had those views. Doesn't make it right, but God will speak to you after the manner of your language, D&C 1. So I like what you said, Bryce, the same person who wrote these verses that I think are a little bit puzzling in Second Nephi 5 the same person wrote Second 2 Nephi 26.33 that all are alike in the God and so I want to testify he even that. says black and white yeah it's very specific read if, if, if someone is antagonistic in a classroom I go straight to uh, 2 Nephi 26.33 and I read that verse and I talk about it um, I, I'm going to throw some things out there that may or may not be right and so I'm going to put this in the show notes Ethan Sprout wrote a great article about this idea of the skin being made black or being made white could have a temple contextual setting. And so it's sensitive, but it's a really good article that opens up those possibilities. I think another really easy one is like what Bryce said, Nicodemus talking to Jesus didn't get the message. Is this highly metaphorical and not literal? The reason why I don't believe it's literal is because it, that just isn't the reality. Later in Third Nephi, we'll talk about the Lamanites coming unto the fold of God, and it said that their skins became white, like unto the Nephites. And the reference on that is Third Nephi two fifteen. I don't believe that when they entered the waters of baptism, they had dark skin and they came out looking Scandinavian. I just don't believe that. I also don't believe that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, as First 1 Nephi eleven thirteen says. It says she was, quote, exceedingly fair and white. I don't think she looked like Conan O'Brien. Now she may have, but what I think Mary was, was a first century woman that lived in Palestine. And she looked like a first century woman that lived in that land. In other words, these are metaphors. These are spiritual descriptions of what it means to come unto Christ. And so I bear witness of that, but I also want to bear witness of this idea, Bryce. I think that we need to give people a pass. And what I mean by that is we should avoid presentism. We shouldn't throw someone under the bus hundreds of years ago that maybe they had views that were incorrect just because we're so
1: enlightened. Because what will people say about us in 200 years? If we believe article of faith number nine, we believe all that God has revealed. We believe all that he does now reveal, and we believe he will yet reveal many. We are the recipients of a hundred plus years of revelation that have come to us individually and to the church. We ought not to judge anyone who was dealing with less light than we have in our day. If article of faith number nine is correct, then we should have more revelation today than they had in the past. We should understand and the scriptures better today than anyone has in the past. So be very careful to judge other people by the light that we have and the understanding that we have. Yes, it's the same book. It's the same book of Scripture. And yes, they could have interpreted it the way we do. But we have the benefit of years of study and revelation that's coming and enlightenment. And so let's not judge anyone else based on the light that we have. And let's deal with the situation at hand. It is not the it is the church's position that no one with any type of skin color is any different than anyone else. There's no discrepancy. Second, Nephi 26, all are alike unto God. Amen. And um, with that, I just want to close
0: out with a couple thoughts. One of them is this whole chapter as a temple setting is establishing some things that the festival... Uh, in the fall, established, and it, it's it's kingship, it's a relationship to God, and it's a moving forward of family. In the next few chapters, six through ten, in Jacob's narrative, is going to be s- set in that stone. It's going to be set in that what what they call in scholarship, sit- sits in Laban. The setting in life is the temple and the fall festival, and so we'll talk about that next time. I really do appreciate uh, what's happening here in the text. But I just want to say this, and I maybe said this a ton of times, but if you're a first-time listener, I just I think it's important that you hear this. Um, this is not a construction of a 23-year-old imaginative young man in upstate New York. It is riddled, uh, especially this fifth chapter, with temple imagery and kingship ideas. Uh, the fourth chapter, the Psalm of Nephi, it's just beautiful. And it, and it reveals who Nephi is. And so in, in whatever way I can, in, in the frailties of my testimony, I just want to bear witness that there's power in these words, and they have perpetual relevance, and it's worth the time it takes to talk about it with your kids and in your wards. And with that, um, I leave you my testimony.
1: Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.